0: Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. In today's podcast, we beam up and take a macro perspective on cryptocurrencies. My name is Carl Michael. And I'm co-hosting the show with Simon Schaber. Hi, Simon. How are you? I'm doing
1: great. Thanks for being here with me.
0: For our talk today on crypto macroeconomics, we have invited a special guest, Dr. Cyrus Della Rubia, the chief economist of Hamburg Commercial Bank. Very warm welcome, Cyrus. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Hi. Hi. Yeah, It's a big pleasure to have you here and I on on our talk. Before we start the talk, uh, we'd like to mention that, dear listener, all you hear today are subject personal opinions of our guests, Cyrus, Simon and me. Nothing is investment advice. This podcast show serves general information and entertainment purposes only. But now back to our guest, Dr. Cyrus de la Rubia publishes a weekly comment on worldwide macroeconomic developments, on the Hamburg Commercial Bank website, you can read his guest commentaries in renowned business magazines and newspapers like the German Handelsblatt, for example. And sometimes he also joins podcast shows on cryptocurrencies. So we are really lucky to have you with us, Cyrus here. And maybe let's start with a very personal question first, if you don't mind. Your family name, della Rubia, points to a Spanish or Latin American origin. Mm-hmm. Your first name, Cyrus, has Greek or Persian roots. And we know that you studied in Germany and Argentine. Can you lift the secret behind this cosmopolitism <laughs> Yeah.
2: Okay, so it, it's rather trivial. My, I took over my, my wife's name, who is half Spanish. So this is De La Rubia. My former name was Schröder, like the former chancellor. Uh, so I was quite fine with De La Rubia. But uh, I have some Latin American, well relations in so far as I lived in Argentina uh, during my primary school so this uh, well all in all it fit well quite well to the name also
0: ah okay so there's a clear reasoning behind uh, clear rationale behind this cosmopolitanism. but uh, (laughs) going back to your or or coming to your job as chief economist and head of research at Hamburg commercial bank what is a chief economist doing there can you explain this to our listeners
2: Well, actually, what economists usually do, analyzing the business cycle, trying to get an idea where foreign exchange rates, uh, the interest rates, growth is heading, but looking also very much to structural changes, uh, be it due to Corona or be it due to blockchain things. So, and especially then when when they have a a strong impact or promise to have a strong impact on the economy.
1: And that's, of course, very interesting and very relevant. Uh, especially as we take the macro look on crypto right now. And while we head over to that topic, maybe you could let us know a bit what was your initial touch point, your initial point of entry to digital assets and the cryptocurrency space as a whole.
2: Well, actually, the first time that that I got into contact with crypto assets was rather trivial. It was the increase of of the Bitcoin price surpassing 1000 US dollar, which happened in, in 2013. I think that was the moment when Bitcoin could no longer be ignored by newspapers and, and also not by economists. And and I had this feeling, okay, there is something going on here with which could really have an, an impact on the whole economy. But, well, admittedly, it, it took a while until I, I also invested enough time to get a clear understanding on, on how this space is, is working and how it functions. And, well, actually, I, I spent half of my summer holiday in 2016 or 17, I think, digging into this subject. And well, it was a kind of hobby uh, at the beginning. Yeah.
1: I feel like that's how it starts out for most of us, <laughs> kind of as an academic interest, or as a hobby, and then it really drags you in and draws you in. So I think that's a all-too-common story that you've told us here. As you mentioned, that really Bitcoin already in 2013 was no longer um, ignorable for everyone involved in the space, but also for newspapers and the media as a whole. Right now, we are, I feel like we're seeing the financial world being unable to ignore crypto, DeFi, and yeah, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So in your role as chief economist at Hamburg Commercial Bank, do digital assets already play a role, like an active role in your daily work? And what do you expect the role to be in the future?
2: Well, in a way they they do play a role in the in the daily work because there are some journalists who are asking me about this subject uh, and and I do write articles about this subject as you already have have mentioned apart from i'm also asked on the executive level of my bank to bring some like some some light into into this complex world in general. Banks operate uh, still in, in well in the traditional financial markets and are very well regulated. Uh, so there is barely one medium-sized or, or big bank that is broadly engaged in, in crypto assets, and, and we are no exception in, in this respect. But with respect to the future, very much will depend how open regulators are with respect to crypto assets and the sector of uh, defi, so decentralized finance. My impression is that Germany in this respect has a certain openness and it would be certainly a mistake to prohibit further progress given that there is huge innovative uh, potential here. And so it's quite important to be open there.
1: I really agree. It's also feels like we kind of had a bit of a head start in the space with, well, with the German crypto custody, uh, custody license, where Coinbase just received the first one, I think yesterday or the mm-hmm. day before. And it would be really unfortunate, of course, to see this slip again and go to Asia, maybe the Chinese, of course, different in this case, or the Americans again. Uh, let's see what the future holds for us. If we talk about crypto assets from a macroeconomic perspective, what, in your opinion, are the most burning topics? What's really driving the narrative, and what's gonna shape crypto assets as an asset class as a whole in the future?
2: yeah that's that's an interesting question and, and the first thing that comes to my mind is is something that is not a crypto asset, which is well central bank digital currency because um, this is in a way very much triggered by bitcoin, by stable coins, so by real crypto assets. And this is a huge macroeconomic issue at the moment. And, and well, the ECB plans to have a digital euro in five years. They have not really well shown the, the detailed plan how to, to do this, but it, it seems to be that it will not be a digital euro based on blockchain. But I would expect that banks have the possibility to, to base their blockchain currency or to issue themselves a blockchain-based currency underlied by by the digital euro. And this would be certainly very, very important also, also due to to some requirements from industry 4.0, which has business models like pay-per-use and where many industry executives say, well, we, we need this blockchain-based currency. And in addition, you have certainly impact on of the digital euro on monetary policy in the future, and also in terms of stability of the banking sector, and also trust in, in the currency in connection to privacy issues. So these are a few macroeconomic subjects in relation to CBDC, so to Central bank digital currency. But there are other macroeconomic issues here also. So DeFi, I mentioned already, is certainly very important as DeFi could really change the whole structure of the financial markets. So we should have a, a, a close look at this also. And finally, when, when I look into Um, Twitter accounts of Bitcoin fanatics, uh, then inflation is the subject that motivates many people to go into Bitcoin and other crypto assets. You certainly have seen the the 5% inflation figure of the United States. This has triggered some discussion about hyperinflation coming soon. Well, I I don't think that that this is really a very realistic and even double-digit inflation figures are not very soon to come. But instead, I think that inflation will calm down. But this is certainly a subject that is also, in a way, related to what is
0: happening in in crypto uh, asset markets. If you're pointing to inflation and uh, your opinion is, and I have read this in some of your commentaries already, that you don't see the hyperinflation coming. Mm. But still, inflation is a topic in, in asset markets. And Bitcoin, with its limited supply of 21 million, is somehow considered as an inflation hedge. And uh, this goes together with the kind of digital gold narrative. And mm-hmm, Maybe mm-hmm. Bitcoin replacing gold as, as this kind of whatever backing of, of a currency or, yes, as something people can go to if inflation maybe goes out of range later on. What's your view on this digital gold narrative?
2: Well, the first point is that gold has probably not been a good inflation hedge anyway. So, if you had, for example, invested in 2011 in gold and go out now, then you will remark that the price increase was not enough to compensate for the inflation in the meantime. So, so gold is volatile, and Bitcoin is even more volatile. So, I think it's it's very. Well, it's, it's very much a question of timing, and you can be lucky or you can be uh, have less luck. So I think that gold is more a kind of of insurance against political. Risks and political uncertainty, and uh, you can take it also to the extreme. Insurance against war, and and some Bitcoin investors seem to to think in a, in a similar direction, and and want to protect themselves against a complete and, and lasting collapse of the financial market, or even uh, against a failed state. But, but I think that that between a f- failed state and a smooth running economy, there are many different shades of gray. And and I'm not sure that Bitcoin is really covering all these scenarios which are possible in between. And and, and even it may not uh, be a hedge for for a breakdown scenario either, because uh, take, for example, the situation or scenario where the power grid is breaking down too. So it would be difficult to get access to your Bitcoin. It would be difficult to mine new Bitcoin. So I have have some doubts in, in this respect. However, you mentioned the limited supply of Bitcoin and of of 21 million, and most of it has already been mined. So I agree in a way that this could well mean that Bitcoin will increase in value over the next, let's say, 10 years or so. So if you think over longer term cycles, it does not look unplausible to expect higher value. And this certainly also depends on technological progress in, in the Bitcoin space. For example, if uh, the Lightning Network really uh, worked in a sustainable and reliable way. Then the demand for Bitcoin, also as a transaction means, could really uh, gather strength, and and the demand for Bitcoin as a whole then would would also go up, and well, be more attractive for
0: investors. Yeah. So can I summarize this? You are slightly. Whatever positive about Bitcoin's future development, but you do not fully buy into this digital gold narrative. Let me Uh, confront you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let me confront you with a, um, not confront might, might not be the right word, but these big US investors seem to change their mind a little bit on Bitcoin. Like Paul Tudor Jones, for example, he recently gave an CNBC interview in which he said, I quote him now, the only thing that I know for certain is that I want to have 5% in gold, 5% in Bitcoin, 5% in cash and 5% in commodity. So this is the allocation of his assets. If we look at international surveys, how crypto assets are allocated in hedge funds, then we see it's expected allocations of Bitcoin of like 7% in five years ahead on average. And in the US, even higher, it's expected to be a 10% allocation. So when do you think large European banks are going to join the bank? Well,
2: I think that that those banks who are active in in asset management and in private banking, they certainly feel some pressure from their clients uh, to act uh, in this respect. And I think this is also the dynamic Think that is happening in the United States. Why? Goldman Sachs, for example, has started again to be active in, in this space. And, and I would expect this to continue and, and it may trigger here in Europe a similar kind of, let's say, institutionalization of Bitcoin investments like it is the case at Wall Street. It could mean that we will also have a future market for Bitcoin in more investment funds which go into Bitcoin and so on. But it obviously also depends very much on, on the regulatory Uh, In the U.S., for example, the SEC has delayed uh, once again the decision to approve an ETF for Bitcoin, meaning that there is no U.S. ETF on on Bitcoin available. So it's it's not only the decision by banks to go into the space,
0: but also by the regulator and ultimately by the government. But the Canadians are really front running on this Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs, right? Don't you think this would spread over and force the U.S. to follow? I think that that the US is
2: making most of the decisions uh, quite independently of what is happening uh, in Canada or, or Europe. Uh, I don't think that they feel pressure from from this side. They feel the pressure from from Wall Street certainly, <laughs> but yeah, but, but I don't think that that Canada itself will be the trigger for doing this.
1: Well, that's rather interesting. I think it's yeah, it it collides a bit with what we heard from. Other guests on the podcast but i think that's why it's so interesting to have many well smart people from very different spaces and fields here on the show with us so maybe if we go kind of back to european commercial banks and retail banks what we see at the moment is that many banks start charging negative interest rates on current account deposits and this is of course in stark contrast to what we see in the world of defi where stablecoin lending, stablecoin liquidity provisioning can yield um, rather high interest rates, something around between 2% and up to 6%, which is, of course, yeah, unheard mm-hmm. of in traditional finance. Do you think that retail banks will be forced at some point to start building partnerships with, for example, Signum Bank or Solaris Bank? Uh, we had Julian Grigo from Solaris Bank here on the podcast a few months ago. It was super interesting. So do you think there will come a point where larger banks are forced to build relationships? Do you think they have it in themselves to build those products themselves? Or do you think, yeah, we're going to see two different providers of financial services with more new challenger banks offering also DeFi products and uh, the large established players on the other side? What's your take on that?
2: Well, I think that any company has the possibility to choose different ways so they, they can build up their own know-how, they can purchase know-how on the market or cooperate with other firms which have this know-how. So it's certainly a strategic decision, which indeed the decision itself will become more pressing the more positive headlines, the crypto space is generating and, and the more clients ask for such a service. At the moment, there are many unknowns, including with respect to regulation, technology and, and also acceptance by the public. But I think that anyone who is working in, in the financial market should have very close eye uh, on, on these developments.
1: I absolutely agree with you. Maybe as we had this topic, let's dive a bit deeper into it. As we're seeing 8%, maybe even 12% premium in DeFi, um, what do you think is the main reason for these very high rates? One of my favorite theories is that it's a very honest expression of um, what's going on in the world economy and what the narrative of, um, let's say, investors with high-risk appetites um, is really expressing, that we see in DeFi what's not allowed to surface in traditional finance. Others say that it's all due to the risk. It's so inherently risky, decentralized finance, that the premium is reasonable due to that. But then again, we see things like trash bonds yielding 3.9% and having a traditional 4% default rate. So the question is always, why do we see these rates in DeFi and not in the traditional world? What's your take on that? Where, where do they come from, really?
2: Yeah, well... I. My feeling is that that these high risk premiums, high premiums are, are mainly uh, risk related, and also related to the fact that there is a, in comparison to other traditional markets, rather small number of market participants. For example, if you compare it to to bond investors, take for example high yield bonds. They are well known instruments. If available for retail investors, they could call your uh, their account manager and ask him or her to, to sell or or buy them into your depot, or at least an ETF uh, of high yield bonds. So it's, it's no big deal. Instead, call your bank and ask for Bitcoin, let alone the possibility of staking. Uh, most of them would tell you, well, uh, they are not yet ready for, for uh, such a Business model, or or ask what staking is, or liquidity provisioning in the crypto space. You would not mostly not receive any answer. But apart from that, you see really very different yields, uh, up to fifty percent in part. The usual reflex, which is rather sound, is okay. Something is wrong. But in addition, if you go into into cryptocurrencies, which are obviously inherently uh, very volatile then you pay, let's say, for, the, for an exchange risk. So if you are provisioning liquidity and, and go giving away your, your cryptocurrency, you don't know when you will get it back, how much value it has still. So you need a buffer for this, and, and then uh, 20, 30 or 40% yield uh, is reasonable. So in the traditional world, it would be, well, you run a huge foreign exchange risk and you have to be compensated for it. But apart from it, we cannot ignore that there are also a lot of, scam, of scams running around. And so everybody knows a history or a story of someone who did not get its money back. So you have to be very informed if this is a serious business model or not. And and this is also one another part of this high yields, which, which you can get there.
1: Well, of course, one way of getting to a point where you don't need to be so informed anymore and probably also premiums dropping with it would be smart regulation. And you've alluded to it, I think, a couple of times already so far. I believe most people in crypto would be very happy to have smart regulation that makes it very clear what is allowed without shutting things down. Um, without understanding them and now in europe we have markets and crypto assets regulation micar or now also in germany what's on the table the fatf um, travel rule implementation which by the looks of it might completely shut down decentralized finance at least in germany and yet stable coins might also be in danger at risk um, by the way of how regulation looks at the moment and of course, we're all hoping that we will see more informed decisions being made, but we cannot be sure, unfortunately. So, what's your view on crypto regulation in Europe, in Germany, and what do you think is the difference to other larger markets?
2: Yeah, well, I'm not fully sure if this new regulation really means that there will be no, or that that would was mean mean a breakdown for. For crypto space in, in general, I would say, obviously, the crypto space is a very young industry, which has a huge innovative potential and, and, and is very dynamic indeed. And, and in general, it would certainly not be very prudent uh, rembbing it at this stage into the traditional regulated uh, framework, so because it would stop innov- innovating and, and companies would start to look at, at other places to do business. On the other hand, if you take money laundering standards, I think the regulation you mentioned is referring to this. I think it is good that, that the Bafin is perhaps even ahead of other countries in, in this respect, because sooner or later, new and, and more detailed rules against money laundering in the crypto space will come. And it seems to be a good idea to me to be prepared for this. And it could mean even a backlash if, if you are careless as a regulator. Uh, so this could cost reputation and, and deter people also from entering the space. So I do not fully agree in this respect. What what I saw when, when I read a Bafin text about the custodial business for crypto assets, which they published in 2020... And there is one thing I stumbled over, uh, and this is that crypto assets that are foreign legal tender are excluded from the definition of crypto assets. And I wondered, OK, what about El Salvador, uh, which is about to introduce Bitcoin as legal tender in September of this year? How will they define it? And and this is only one example uh, which shows how complicated it is to regulate this space. And in a way, maybe we should be lucky that Barfin is at least really building up know-how uh, in this space, which should be the basis for having smart regulation in, in the future. And maybe uh, one step may be too far and, and the other not so good. But all in all, I'm quite
0: optimistic that they will find a good balance. I agree with you that regulation is a kind of double edged sword here. It's, I mean, somehow dangerous for young companies, but on the one hand side, but on the other hand side, if you want to have big financial institutions entering the market, it's a prerequisite. So, and this again would stabilize the volatile Bitcoin market ETC. So, you also already said that. Um, Bigger financial institutions are eyeing the crypto market. You mentioned Goldman Sachs, obviously the JP Morgans, BNY Mellon entering crypto custody. So a lot is happening there. But it's not only financial institutions. Um, We also see corporations moving into the market. And you mentioned El Salvador. So governments also think about uh, cryptocurrencies. Meanwhile, even introducing them as El Salvador has done as legal tender. If we take the, let's say, corporate treasury use case of uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general, then we have obviously MicroStrategy and to a certain degree Tesla, as well-known frontrunners. But it's not only these two which you see appearing in the headlines. According to the latest results from Genesis, which is an institutional crypto service provider, which, for example, provides lending services for cryptocurrencies for public clients they have seen in Q1 this year an increase to over 25% of their lending activities and trading activities towards corporations. So it's not just the financial institutions uh, anymore. How do you personally see this corporate treasury use case for cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin? So
2: first, if you take Bitcoin as a treasury asset, it obviously does not have the characteristics uh, of a traditional corporate treasury asset because uh, usually they are low-risk assets. So money market funds, short-term treasury is commercial paper where you don't have to fear that there is a loss of value in a short uh, time frame. So I don't think that it uh, to be very wise to get to the extreme way of of micro strategy to have Bitcoin as the main treasury asset. uh, And and if you look at the company's share price, it is moving very much in tandem with the price of Bitcoin. So this is a rather strange business model. And well, and you run also the risk that if you really are in need of liquidity in a short time frame, so fiat liquidity, so US dollar liquidity, then then you influence yourself the market negatively by selling your Bitcoin if you are big enough, because the Bitcoin market is not as liquid as we know it, for example, from treasuries or for uh,
0: German government bonds. If we don't take the extreme of of micro strategy, the guys definitely are all into Bitcoin as a treasury asset. But if we think about a, let's say, 5% allocation and see this allocation as a longer term future bet, would you still be... Or would you still have such a critical view on Bitcoin as a treasury asset?
2: Well, I think that there there may be a, a case for having a small share of Bitcoin in your corporate treasury. I don't know if it should be 5% or 3%, but it's obvious that we are living in a near zero or even negative interest rate environment, which means that the opportunity costs for holding Bitcoin on your balance sheets are are low or Non-existent, and and if you think somewhat more out of the box uh, or more into the future, Bitcoin may be used in the future more as a as a bridge currency to move in and out of non-dollar fiat currencies uh, instead of using the dollar as the bridge currency. So, if you want to change, let's say, Mexican peso into Philippine uh, uh, peso, then usually you go through the dollar, but it may be adequate also to go through Bitcoin and even at lower costs and and what is also imaginable is that an increasing number of market participants would start to accept bitcoin as collateral so this also could increase in the future so but but in a way it's it's a chicken egg problem at the moment i think the case for bitcoin as treasury asset is certainly not overwhelming i would say but the more established Bitcoin becomes, this could be be of more interest and uh, it is certainly a good idea to be prepared for this. And you are better prepared if you already start with a tiny uh, amount.
0: You a couple of times during this podcast already mentioned like Bitcoin as a legal tender, the El Salvadorian example. And uh, this leads us at the end of the podcast to our so-called golden question. Mm-hmm. A golden question is uh, normally a question where I would like to know the view of our guest on a hotly debated topic or give his or her outlook on the future of the ecosystem. And so we think we have a tailor-made question for you now, knowing that you worked as chief economist at Dresdner Bank Latin America before you were joining Hamburg Commercial Bank. I think you're the right person to talk about the recent development in El Salvador. But again, it's not only El Salvador. We hear similar news, uh, not in terms of implementation, but in terms of interest for kind of crypto bill in Panama, in Paraguay. It's even discussed in Mexico. I think one of the big Mexican billionaires very recently talked about moving into Bitcoin. But we also see same tendencies in Africa, so Tanzania is starting to do a deep dive into cryptocurrencies and uh, there are countries who have crypto in their treasuries. So I recently saw that Ukraine and Bulgaria already own Bitcoin. Now our golden question, is this all a flash in the pen or the beginning of a global domino effect in your opinion?
2: Okay. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. In any case, I, I think it's a very exciting experiment what is happening here. And the president of El Salvador has announced that in September, on September 7, it will start in, in the real world. It will be live Bitcoin as a legal tender. And there are huge problems which have to be surmounted there in in this tiny country with with some 6 million inhabitants. This is above all the the lack of infrastructure in in terms of internet, in terms of the speed of the internet, in in terms of having access to to smartphones, and obviously also in terms of technology, because as far as I understand it until now, it will be based on the Lightning Network. I have a few doubts if, if they really want to roll it out there, because I guess that it would be much simpler to have kind of of PayPal, where only the units of Bitcoin and dollar are exchanged on this platform, which would obviously not be a really a decentralized approach, but it would work for the people, and so this may be a way to get this thing to the people. The other question, if other countries would take this as an example, well, the point is that that usually it's not really recommendable not to have a sovereign monet, money and monetary policy. But indeed, there are in Latin America, some countries which already do not have. And El Salvador is, is one of them. So they have the, the dollar, and Ecuador, for example, has also the dollar as, as currency or is bound to the, uh, to the dollar one to one. So they are very dependent on what the, the Federal Reserve Bank does. So in, in, in this respect, it would not be a big jump if you, if you go to another currency, uh, which is also exogenous, uh, but it would not really free you from influences because then you are influenced by the tweets of Elon Musk. And, and this is certainly also not very recommendable. And then, This whole issue has also a geopolitical dimension, because I think that states, uh, the United States and also the European Union, they are not very interested in having countries which have introduced Bitcoin as a legal tender, because then you could really have a quite effective mean to circumvent any sanctions and also money laundering issues and and terrorism financing and so on. So this is rather dangerous in, in geopolitical terms. So I think that behind the scenes, the United States and European Union are discussing this very intensively with the countries which are thinking about it and also with El Salvador.
0: Mm, I agree with you. I've I heard that the president uh, got an immediate call from the IMF after he introduced mm-hmm. this news, and that's not surprising. So again, this seems to be kind of a two sided, uh, yeah, the two sides of the of the coin of, of the medal, and uh, I understand that you are skeptical about it, and I think you gave good reasons for this. Thyrus, thanks a lot for this informative talk, your deep insights, your to-the-point answers on the macroeconomics of crypto. Thanks, Simon, for being a great co-host again today. And thank you to all our listeners. We hope you enjoyed this show. Stay tuned, stay loyal to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. All signal, no noise.